And we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome to The Great Debate, not a debate where both sides work to defeat one another, rather a debate where both sides come together to find common ground. Today, I'm stepping down from my position as a moderator, and I will join as a debater with none other than a friend of mine, Bassam. Um, Bassam is a Palestinian educator and activist. He has an awesome podcast called, hold on, I don't have it open in front of me, Bassam, it's Preoccupation, what's it called? Preoccupation, a not-so-brief history of Palestine. Preoccupation, a not-so-brief history of Palestine. You see, as I'm not the moderator today, obviously I forgot to open up my uh, my opening notes, but it's a, it's a fascinating podcast. Um, that I actually listened to. I haven't listened to all the episodes yet, but I've learned a lot from. Basam and I have been going back and forth on Instagram the past few months, having some lively discussions on on many different topics. We figured let's uh, let's bring it public, let's bring it live. So, uh, Basam, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'd uh, like to just open by saying. Um, Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulullah. Before, before I actually get into, uh, before we get into everything that, that I want us to discuss today, uh, I want to recognize that I'm speaking to you from Western Canada on the uh, ancestral homeland of the Coast Salish First Nation. Um, today is Canada Day. It is the day that Canadians um, celebrate their independence. Um, but in Canada, today is a day of national mourning because um, just yesterday and on several different occasions of the last 30 days, we found several mass graves of Indigenous children uh, at the site of what were formerly residential schools. And the residential schools were an expression of this country's genocide um, inflicted upon this country's Indigenous people. And, uh, and so if we do have an opportunity to speak about that at the end, I know it's not the subject that we were going to cover today, but I felt that that was very important to share with viewers who may not know Canada's history with ethnic cleansing and genocide. Sure, yeah. Th thanks for sharing that, Bassam. Um, before we get into uh, the topics, just a quick shout out to our Patreon Visionary members. We have Trivium Energy PTYLTD, SRG Cannabis, Max Marine, Geffen Posner, Adam Becker, Maya and our one and only champion member, Raja. If you want to support the show and become a patron or support us in any other way, you could find uh, links in the description. And if you want to get in touch with Bassam or find his uh, podcast also, that will be in the description. So we're going to start with the topic of normalization. This is a topic that's come up uh, a bunch in the past on the show, but this is an area where I think we'll have some some disagreements and we'll let the conversation flow from there. So. You, you want to share, A, what, what is normalization and what your stance on it is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Adar, I think this probably is the fundamental disagreement between you and I, because in the conversations that we have had, you've made it very clear that um, Palestinian liberation is something that you are very passionate about, that you think is a just cause. It underpins a lot of what it is that you're trying to accomplish. You recently had a debate... Um, that British gentleman, I can't remember his name. Um, Joseph Cohen. Joseph, yeah, about uh, about the Nakba, about ethnic cleansing. And 
really when when you say normalization what i think that you mean is reconciliation which is one part of a two-part formula um usually combined with truth truth and reconciliation usually come together let me park that for a second and maybe give you um share with the viewers uh a little bit about the underpinnings that formulate my worldview um and th and this will help explain why why i stand where i stand on the subject of normalization so a nation at its core and uh, listeners of my podcast will know because I, i've spoken about this a lot uh a nation at its core is a story it is a national narrative it is a story that the that the adherents of that nation um, share about themselves and the institutions within it. A nation, um, a nation is a story that combines a common understanding of the past and the present and a common vision for the future. A state is an institution, specifically at its core, an institution that possesses a monopoly on violence. That is the core of what a state is. All other manifestations of the state, healthcare, education, transportation, those are all secondary and tertiary. The fundamental purpose of the state is to monopolize violence. The point where the nation and the state fuse to form the nation state is when the state becomes the outward manifestation of the ethos of the nation. So it is the point where the state symbolizes, adopts, and projects elements of the national story in its quest to monopolize violence, deliver education, healthcare, all of those things. Did, first of all, did that make sense? Yep, perfect okay. sense. It all makes sense up here. So um, Zionism at its core, whether we are talking about political Zionism or practical Zionism, or whether we work into the 20th century and we focus on revisionism or labor Zionism, or across the spectrum, Zionism consistently applies a principle of Jewish supremacy, and in some cases, Jewish chauvinism, in the land that the, that the Zionists recognize as the land of Israel. So in this case, we're talking about between the river and the sea, we're talking about um, historic Palestine. Um, Zionists view this is a natural thing, Jewish supremacy and Jewish chauvinism. And consequently, the state institutions that came out of the state of Israel all express that in various ways. At a municipal level, in urban planning, in the, of course, in the state instruments of coercion, like the police and the military, uh, in the economic structure, in the incentive structure, I am opposed to normalization because while that apparatus continues to exist, while that state continues to express Jewish supremacism and Jewish chauvinism, the best case that could come out of normalization for the Palestinians, and by normalization, I mean reconciliation. The best case is perhaps a slightly improved status quo where Palestinians are still viewed as strangers in their own land. And so in my, my personal activism, if I was gonna divide my time, 
I'm about 95% focused on truth and 5% focused on reconciliation. In fact, the only conversations I have about reconciliation are with you. I, I don't have those conversations anywhere else, but I have a lot of conversations about truth. Okay, yeah. So I think this definitely touches to on some on some fundamental disagreements. First of all, I, I do recognize what you're saying. I understand why it's hard for Palestinians to accept a state that is Jewish in its nature on land that they have been living. Um, I very well recognize that if the roles were reversed, we wouldn't have accepted such a state. That being said, to, to me, it seems like there's a zero sum thinking that is very much at, at the, at the core of Palestinian activism, which I feel ultimately is going to cause harm to Palestinian liberation, not only is going to cause harm, but has caused harm. So, and again, we're, we're, it's not that I don't recognize where this rejectionism comes from. It's that I don't see how trying to dismantle institutions and essentially dismantle the Jew, the Jewish state is going to open Jews up to hearing the Palestinian struggle and to, to thinking that we can live peacefully with Palestinians on this land. It seems like the, the more Jews have to fear. And let, let's not even say Jews because there's diaspora Jews. I don't want to speak for them, but the more Israelis have to fear. The more our back is up against the wall, the less empathetic we are towards the struggle of the Palestinians. So as much as I understand why partition was rejected in 1948, I think one of the fastest ways forward for Palestinian liberation today is for Israelis to feel safe and secure in their homeland. And the less safe and secure they feel, that seems to me that it's going to come at the expense of, of Palestinian uh, liberation and just Palestinian well-being in general. So when I, you know, you say you look more at, at truth than reconciliation, I would say for me, I look at it as effectiveness of, of activism, right? How can we find in an approach that is ultimately effective? Um, something that's viable, something that's practical. So if it comes down to dismantling Israel, I mean, if, if, if activists want to continue to try that, I mean, by all means, but I think that that is more likely to cause more Palestinian suffering than more Israeli suffering, us having the upper hand, us feeling like this is our only place, it's the only Jewish state. We waited 2,000 years to return to this land. So it doesn't seem like that's an approach that ultimately is going to liberate Palestine. It seems to me like it's going to do the opposite. And, and this is because I support effectiveness, reconciliation, allowing both nations to feel comfortable with one another, um, allowing us to begin to see the humanity in each other and learn our narratives and our grievances seems to be one of the best ways forward in order to achieve Palestinian liberation. So, um, you know, Adara, I, ju I just want to say, and I sh I'll disclose to the listeners that um, 
I, I've been watching your channel for for some time before we connected, and, and I I do believe that you're genuine in what you say, um, in in your interest in seeing um, Palestinians liberated in their own homeland, and um, again, I think our disagreement is more about the road to get there rather than our our opens. Having said that, let's look at the empirical evidence and let's see um, if what you're saying actually adds up. The original Zionist settlers, right? So we're talking about, we're actually talking about proto-Zionism, right? We're talking about the practical Zionists who arrived in Pal like the Belu movement um, and even into the first, what's called the first Aliyah in 1882. They were not anti-Arab, okay? Um, they, they did not come with a hatred of the Arabs. They were not anti-Arab the same way that you are not anti-palm tree. They saw the Arabs as part of the landscape. They are natives. Yes, I, I made the reference in, on purpose. They, uh, they saw the Arabs as part of the landscape. They can, this, this Arab will not notice if we pick him up from Haifa and we drop him in Basra in Iraq, He's not going to notice the difference. This is, you read their writing, this is very much consistent. And this is very much consistent with colonial, settler colonial projects of the time. That attitude toward Palestinians persisted for a very long time in, in um, Zionist thinking. For a very long time, there's a reason why within within 1948 Palestine, within Israel proper, within the Green Line, use whatever terms that you want. There's a reason why you refer to your Palestinian population as Israeli Arabs, and not as uh, the more recent term that, that I've seen adopted, Palestinian citizens of Israel. The reason for that is because people like Menachem Begin, David Ben-Gurion, Golda Meir, they didn't recognize that there was such a thing as a Palestinian. And they told that story, said that these are just Arabs. They just belong in this place or that place. Okay, now without going on too long of a rant, because I actually want to answer the question that you were, that, that you were addressing, when do you think that changed? There, there was a finite point in the history of this struggle where that changed. And it changed in the first intifada. The primary outcome of the first intifada, if you were going to say, like, what was the main thing that came out of what, what was the main concession? I'll call it a concession. What was the main main thing that um, Palestinians gained out of the first intifada was the recognition that Palestinians exist. Because prior to that, it didn't. And the intifada um, was was a was a civil rights struggle it was a largely non-violent movement but it was loud and it was disturbing and it broke with the status quo and so uh by contrast oslo onward so from oslo you could you could say from oslo to today but let's look at the years between um yeah you know okay let's say oslo to today where the path to something that resembles normalization at a state and diplomat, lo diplomat level, this is what uh, uh, Bishar Dumani and Rashid Khalidi call uh, the suit and tie phase of Palestinian history. 
um, what happened? What happened between 1993 and 2005 was that more settlements in the West Bank were built in those years than between 1967 and 1993. So I look at normalization like this. Suppose that I was living in, um, you know, my dad was born in Mukhayyam al-Am'ari in the Am'ari refugee camp in Ramallah. Suppose that I was living there. Or even better, suppose that I was living in Sheikh Jarrah. And you, Adar, come to me and you say, look, let's eat hummus together. Let's hang out. Um, you recognize that I should be able to live in Sheikh Jarrah. I recognize that you, Bassam, should be able to live in Yafa, where you are ancestrally from. And I say, you know what? Okay, I recognize this. Adar, do you have the capacity, the means to be able to live in the West Bank? By hook or by crook, do you have that capacity? Yeah. One way or another, right? Yeah. You do. So I said, okay, great. Adar, ahna sahla. Welcome. Welcome, welcome to welcome to Daf al Welcome to Sheikh Jarrah. Welcome to Silwan, wherever it is. Okay. Now uh, get me into Yafa. I want to go to my ancestral homeland. You then will return to the state instruments of coercion that have Jewish supremacy at the core of their DNA. And you will say, hey, I want my friend Bassam to come live in Yafa. And they'll say, you're out of luck because that guy's not coming here. By the way, this is owned by the Jewish National Fund. It's against our bylaws for him to live here anyway. You come back to me and say, hey, Bassam, sorry, no luck. And I said, but you're here now. Well, this is not fair. Now you need to get out. And he said, whoa, 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 you can't get me out now. This is ethnic cleansing. <laughs> and so this is why that type of formulation does not work. Because there is a power imbalance wherein you can get your way through normalization. I don't just mean you personally, Adar, but I mean the Jew, the Zionist, the Israeli can get their way. But the current power dynamics prohibit me from getting anything out of that equation other than that you and I get to have a nice, nice conversation. It is what Ghassan Kenafani called a conversation between the sword and the neck. I hear you. I, I do think something can come from the conversation, though. I think that currently, if we look at how Israelis prioritize, um, hold on, there's a car, get out of here. Um, if we look at how Israelis prioritize, like what's important to them, what, what affects who they vote for, security is generally towards the top. Palestinian well-being is non-existent. And why? Because it's, it's not necessarily, the majority of Israelis don't hate Palestinians, we just view them as our enemy who we need to defend ourselves from, and if we don't, we'll be killed. That's generally the, the framework. Obviously, fear manifests itself in many ways, and often hate as well, but we do not value the well-being of Palestinians as we see them as our enemy who just wants to destroy us. If we were to have more contact with Palestinians, learn more from Palestinians about their struggle and their narrative, I think it would help put Palestinian well-being at a higher importance amongst Israelis. It's very easy to be indifferent to somebody who you don't know or somebody who you perceive as your enemy, but it's much harder to be indifferent towards somebody who you can call a friend or at the very least an acquaintance. Israelis don't learn anything about Palestinian narrative. 
well, we, we learn the, the parts that make Palestinians seem like they're just um, a, a, a fake nation who's just here to kill us, right? That's, that's what we learn about Palestinians. We don't learn true Palestinian grievances. Palestinians, and again, I'm not saying Palestinians alone. This is the work of Israeli activists as well. But Palestinians have the great ability to educate Israelis the, the way you do. So when I say I, I can understand the anti-normalization to the extent that says we should not just pretend everything's okay. We shouldn't just sit and have hummus together, right, because of this, this power imbalance. But we should engage in dialogue. We should be able to have these meetings, share our struggle, share our narrative, be the educators um, th that are very much needed in order for Israelis to understand Palestinian grievances. So. I, I view this as Israelis having the power, Israelis being the ones who actually vote for our leaders. If we can get Israelis to care about Palestinians, I think that will that has the ability to change how we view politics. So that, that's, that's where I see a great benefit in, in us communicating with one another. You know, on the, so since we're still on the subject of normalization, um, there is uh, there is a position that you could take on the subject of normalization or or rather anti-normalization that can get to the point of absurdity, right? Um, one story that I, <laughs> uh, so Robert Fisk, late, um, he, he died uh, just mid 2020, I think. He was a foreign correspondent, wrote for The Independent, uh, amazing journalist. And he shared a story about when he um, interviewed fighters from Hamas in southern Lebanon, in that brief phase where they were exiled in southern Lebanon. Um, some of the fighters asked him, some of the, the commanders asked him, where are you going to next? And they said, uh, he said, I'm going to interview Shimon Perez. And they said, would you like his home phone number? And what that story revealed was that on some level or another, a lot of these people communicate but it's what they're communicating about that's different. So I am not going to take anti-normalization to its extreme and say that if a Zionist says hi to me in the street that I'm going to walk away. Um, I've never asked you, Adar, if you identify as a Zionist or, or not, but I'm talking to you, right? But it's what we're talking about that kind of changes the nature of the conversation. Now, the thing about, um, the thing about communication that we've learned more than ever in the Trump era, we learned something really remarkable about communication. And that is the beauty of the echo chamber. And that is the reality that I can actually talk to you and you might actually hear nothing. Like I'm saying words in a language that you understand, but you're not actually hearing anything. Um, if you want to see the echo chamber epitomized in this, in this whole theater between the river and the sea. Um, if you want to see it in one screen grab, it would be watching um, Israelis sit upon hilltops, watching Gaza get pummeled by the Israeli Air Force and cheer and celebrate. They know there are human beings there, right? They know that. But the, the nature of the echo chamber is such that well, let's look at an academic, um, let's look at some academic examples. Up until, like I have 
hundreds of books all over my house. Up until something like 2005, 2006, historians in the United States, in Canada, by and large, unless they were Palestinian historians, they didn't use Palestinian sources. They thought of Palestinian sources of firsthand accounts as fundamentally untrustable. It's like a built-in racism to it. And you probably hear this all the time if you're debating with Zion, if you are debating with Arden Zionist and you're saying, but you know, my friend Bassam says this. And I'll say, come on, he would say that, right? Of course he's gonna say that. He's an Arab. And so in the current climate where the power imbalance is so is so lopsided, I'm skeptical of the impact of even if every Israeli knew a Palestinian. You had <laughs> I know I'm kind of going on a tangent here, so I'll wrap this up. In one of the debates that you had on Salha, there was a, 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 a Israeli girl who said something, an Israeli woman who said something. I almost fell out of my chair laughing when she said, you know, the, the, the girl who threads my eyebrows in Palestinian, and that's how I know that Israel is not an apartheid state. And that is hilarious. That is like an American being like the Mexican who, who does my gardening you know, he's Mexican, I'm not a racist, right? And the, the guy at the, my barbershop, he is black, America is not racist. It's hilarious, absolutely oblivious. And so in the current climate where those state instruments of coercion continue to express Jewish supremacy in the way that they do, normalization, these conversations can only do so much. Also keep in mind, and this is the last thing I'll say, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you I'll stop hogging up all the oxygen. I, as effective as I may ever be, will never be able to compete with the Israeli education system. Like I may get, let's say my, my podcast explodes to tens of thousands of listeners. I'm competing against a state-backed institution through which it is compulsory that every single Israeli child sits. I can't compete with that. Like that propaganda machine is so much more effective than I will ever be. So I'm more inclined to try and transform the propaganda machine itself. So, I, I mean, you do make a good point that that even with these conversations, they're still competing with a propaganda machine. I, Israel education doesn't go. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess if, if you were to hear it, you would you would view it as propaganda. But it's not like it's not like comparable to like North Korean propaganda or some other like truly authoritarian nations that really like drill in a national story from a young age. I'd say it's it's a little bit more liberal than that. But I do still see value because often we've seen that change has taken place outside of, of the institutions. So during the American Civil Rights Movement, and I know no example, like we could point to South Africa. Some people like to point to South Africa. Some people like to point to the Civil Rights Movement. No example we're going to use is, is one for one. But we could take certain instances to try to understand how dynamics power dynamics may play out. And the American Civil Rights Movement was 
black activists also going against uh, a white supremacist propaganda machine. And they didn't do it alone. The, the, it wasn't black activists alone. It was black activists very much appealing to, to white Americans saying we should be equal. We're, we're no different than you. Um, and they were able to build a broad coalition of, of black Americans and, and white Americans. And so that does give me hope that even with the state apparatus, you know, that, that um, instills in its citizens uh, certain ideas, I don't think that means you, you can't change the hearts and minds of a population through real activism. Um, I, I do think we, we're, we're not so in opposition from one another when it comes to, to normalization ultimately, because I, I get what you're saying about the, the kumbaya, let's just pretend everything's okay. I don't oppose that. Like if I see Israelis and Palestinians being friends, like I'd, I'd be happy to see that. But I certainly will not tell a Palestinian, you should go befriend an Israeli. Like I, it's not an expectation. So mm -hmm. I, I think we are, we are almost aligned there. I, I would leave it up to the Palesti Palestinian to decide what they are comfortable with. But I very much do believe that building these ties and building a coalition with one another, I think ultimately can have a great impact. And, you know, I also very much think that if black Americans during civil rights movement, if their goal was to dismantle the United States or maybe sometimes use harsher rhetoric, destroy the United States, I think they would have much less white allies. So. Uh, again, this this strengthens the notion for me that the activism will be more effective if we could build a coalition of Israelis and Palestinians, and Israelis are not going to get on board with a coalition that sees the destruction of their homeland. Um, you may be un under the opinion that you know, oh well, then we'll do it alone. We'll do it with the international community, and I so I'd actually like to hear from you. So, so you don't <laughs> yeah. you don't think. You don't think conversations can have um, a great impact. And I would actually agree with you. I don't think that's enough. I think the idealist in me says, if every Israeli had a Palestinian friend and every Palestinian had an Israeli friend, the conflict would be over. That's the idealist in me. But the realist in me understands that it's probably not so simple. It'll probably require some other means. So I want to hear from you what you think those means uh, actually can be, what, what you'd like to see happen and, and how we go about that. So there is so much in there to, to unpack. Um, for one, actually, the civil rights struggle um, was a, had, had its own political spectrum. Um, so if you, read, if you uh, read the writings of and about Martin Luther King, yes, I could see how you would leave with the impression that you left with. If you read the work of Malcolm X, you'd leave with a very different impression. Uh, if you read the works of the Black Panthers, if you, if you, so the civil rights movement was definitely a spectrum, but the, the white Americans who were on board with that also came to the realization that America needs to go a fundamental change. I would also argue that the civil rights struggle, similar to the Intifada, failed in that it took its foot off the gas too soon. Um, actually, they were able to get major concessions in the civil rights era, and then the state of race relations, frankly, stagnated in the United States up until very recently. Um, so 
with that, let's talk about tactics and the subject of the international community. Um, uh, you know, Palestinians recently have undergone a form of liberation and a, a very important form of liberation, not from the Israeli occupation. Palestinians have been liberated from the shackles of false hope. Okay. Egypt is not coming. Erdogan is not coming. Imran Khan and Pakistan, they're not coming. Saudi Arabia is not coming. Nobody's coming to save us. And that is liberating because we can now recognize that other than Allah, we have no one. We don't have anybody to protect us. And in fact, as a, as a Muslim, I find that exceptionally liberating because uh, all other types of power, all other worldly types of power are in fact uh, illusory. They're, they're an illusion that, uh, that, that they, they are merely figments of our imagination. And this is, this is liberating because it allows us to finally get to work, to know that nobody else is gonna solve this for us. And this is a problem that Palestinians have struggled with since the 1920s. You know, believe it or not, in the 1920s, British and French intelligence believed that Mustafa Kemal's, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, Mustafa Kemal's army was going to be marching into Homs in no time. He's going to come trample through Syria. The French were not prepared for him. And so the French made a separate deal. His army stayed in Anatolia. The French stayed in Syria. Crisis averted. So we learned at that time, Mustafa Kemal is not coming to save us. And with that, I actually find that to be, um, I find that to be uplifting. I know now that we can only rely on Allah to, to, to save us from, from the situation that we're in. I do not rely on the international community to do anything. And the biggest gains that Palestinians have been able to make from 1948 until now have all been at grassroots level activism. As far as how Palestinians should move forward, look, if an individual Palestinian wants to invite a settler into his house and say, look at how I live, look at these conditions, look at how I have no water, look at how your settlement has blotted out the sun, look at all of this. If he wants to do this, I'm not gonna stop him. But I will not take an, a priori position to tell Palestinians to let down any means of resistance, all means of resistance in any either civil rights struggle or, struggle or liberation struggle must be kept on the table. None of them should by default be taken off the table. So even if there are some conversations that are happening on uh, the person-to-person -person level, even if there are diplomatic conversations happening, even if all of, even if BDS is a lot, all of these things should be happening in tandem. We should never sacrifice any of the cards that we have to play because at the end of the day that we are the weaker, we are the weaker party. So we need all of the cards that we have. I'm on mute. Yeah, I was on mute. Um... I actually agree. I, I, I agree with most of what you said. I think um, faith in the international community should should not be had. M more often than not, the international community does not come in and and help um, oppressed people. Uh, there's only probably a, a few instances where they have, uh, and in recent times, very close to none. So 
I would say that is a good realization. When it comes to, um, I guess you you know you you view things in more of like an Islamic lens. I'm more you know agnostic, but what what I would say is, and maybe this is just a semantic different. No one but Allah. The way I view it is no one but ourselves. But but do. Is that a, is that an unnecessary semantic difference between us empowering ourselves and and but by the will of Allah, us having the ability to do it? Well, one principle that Jews, Christians, and Muslims all agree on is that uh, God helps those who help themselves. So okay. we're not far off. Okay, sounds good. Um, all forms of resistance being on the table. Um, yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't tell a resistance movement what they can and can't do we we were often in the in a weaker position and uh we did what we needed to do to fight back that said i do view certain forms of resistance as far more effective and i certainly understand why we are viewed as colonists to palestinians um not only you know when we came here we called ourselves colonists we had uh the 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 jewish colonists jewish colonist association yeah 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 we, we had all these these trusts and associations that were named jewish uh colonist association so you know makes sense um makes sense that we're viewed as as colonists two palestinians were colonizers i i recognize that but i think that there's something fundamentally different between us and most other colonies it's that we very much belong to the land just like palestinians do Right. The, the idea of us packing up our bags and going home is not the same as Indian uh, British leaving India or French leaving Algeria. Um, we're going to live and, and die for this land. Not not all you. Know, some some will say, you know what, I'll, if if shit hits the fan, I'll find a way to to immigrate to a different country. But. It's in the millions of people who are willing to fight and die for this land. This is not just a regular colony um, of, an, uh, of another country. This is an indigenous rights movement that used colonial tactics to achieve their goals. And their goals came at the expense of Palestinian national liberation. Um, so I don't think the I don't think just looking at it in terms of colonize the colonized needing to fight the colonizers that framework is gonna necessarily work and often that was done through violence you know violent resistance until it it, it was not worth it for them to live here they're gonna pack up right that that's a very common anti-colonial tactic i don't see that being nearly as effective uh with jews living on the land i view violence against jews living on the land as only radicalizing them only making them more fearful, more proud of their nation, more hateful towards Palestinians. Um, again, may I be wrong in my assumption? Perhaps. But based off what I know about the Israeli people and just about people in general of what violence does to us, what trauma does to us, it seems like we should try to avoid violent resistance. While I will not even say, as you said, it should all be kept on the table. I understand that and respect that. But when I look at what will be most effective, I think violent resistance probably is not going to be what's going to help liberate Palestine. And I think it's more likely to do the opposite. Recently, 
we had, I think Palestinians had the greatest moment of activism perhaps in the past 70 plus years. They did a general strike. Mm -hmm. Palestinians, Palestinian citizens of Israel and, Pal and West Bank Palestinians that work in Israel didn't show up to work. I, I don't know if it was for a day or a few days. That is powerful. I think that may have achieved more in one day uh, than than BDS has in in their decade plus of of operation. Again, I'm not I'm not saying don't don't have right. BDS as an option. Um, I just think that these th this form of activism, this is what we should be looking at. General strikes. Uh, we've seen them be effective. Uh, mm -hmm. Communicating, trying to build ties with Israelis. Again, doesn't need to be kumbaya ties. It could just be educating them, getting. Uh, Israelis to care about the Palestinian struggle, um, having the Palestinian struggle be part of our political conversation amongst Israelis. I view these as ultimately the most effective forms of activism. Um, so, yeah, the, the conversation about effectiveness is very important. Um, again, when I look at the last hundred years of Palestine's colonization. And it's funny, just uh, while you were talking, I was uh, looking at the side of the screen and one guy was frantically scrambling. No, 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 no. That's not what they meant by colonization. They meant something else by colonization when they called themselves a Jewish colonization association. Look, Zayev Jabotinsky knew what they meant by colonization. When Zayev Jabotinsky wrote his Iron Wall essay, he said, every, every native population resists a colonial project. That is what we are and that is what this is. He knew exactly what was going on. And so the fear that you keep talking about is a really important part of this recipe. It's a really important part of this whole conversation. When Theodore Herzl was presenting to a um, British commission on what Zionism is, and he said that Zionism is a national movement, and he kind of explained the fundamental underpinnings, and he said, look, a nation is a people, I define a nation as a story. He defined a nation as a people united around a common enemy. That was in Theodore Herzl's definition of a nation. And it's not a bad definition either. So it's not a bad one. But when they said, well, what is the common enemy here for the Zionist? Do you know what he said? Are you familiar with this? Do you know what he said? No, no, I don't. No. So no, no hesitation, not a moment's hesitation. And they said, like, this is Zionism. This is what the Zionist nation is. And this is what a nation is. And they said, what's the common enemy? He said, the anti-Semite. That is the enemy of, this, of the Jewish nation. At which point, had somebody asked, well, what happens if there's no more anti-Semitism? Theodor Herzl's response would have been, that's impossible. Because anti-Semitism is endemic to the human condition. Something that Theodor Herzl believed, right? That the world was fundamentally built of Semites and anti-Semites, and by Semites he means Jews, right? Of Jews and anti-Semites. And living in the European environment that he lived in, look, I can totally understand how he came to that conclusion. But he did not feel that Europeans would ever be free of anti-Semitism. What Israel, Israel never lost that. Anti-Semitism is a fail-safe to the Israeli identity. It is, it is a, it's like an immune system to change. So that any criticism that comes into Israel is immediately met with the charge of anti-Semitism. And for that to be possible, defining anti-Semitism has constantly had to change. We can probably agree 
that 1930s style European anti-Semitism doesn't exist in the world the way that it did in the 1930s. Can we agree on that? Like, um, a lot of the same tropes still very much yeah. exist. It's yeah. just, I don't think you have any nation that is, uh, used those tropes to gain power and made it, made the, the Jewish, the Jewish question as a focal point of a political yeah. campaign that doesn't yeah. exist today. Yeah. Okay. We, we are in total agreement. We're in total agreement. So all of the tropes, all of the subtle, um, all of the false forms of flattery of Jews are conniving and Jews are sneaky and Jews are smart, but all in this like mischievous way. Yes, it all exists on some level, but it's not manifested in the same way, right? But even if it didn't exist, even if it did not, if anti-Semitism has been at the core of your national story, Israel actually needs, it's this, it's this weird, uh, frankly, kind of perverse reality where Israel needs this to be able to keep the nation together. And now anti-Semitism is embodied in the Palestinian, right? The Palestinian is the threat, is the Palestinian is the threat to Jewish survival, even if we were not. One of the things that I've learned from your channel is that um, very bizarrely from my side of the fence, that a lot of Jews actually see themselves as the weaker party. They actually think that they're negotiating from a position of weakness. Like the fear that you're talking about is so many layers deep. And you've been living in Zayev Jabotinsky's iron wall for so long that you don't realize the position of strength that you're speaking from. It's remarkable. It's largely due to the fact that we are a population that is just two generations from having half our population murdered and hundreds of years of persecution leading up to that. That's at least the Ashkenazi Jews and the Mizrahi Jews leaving their countries in fear of um, being killed by, by their neighbors. So we're very much a traumatized population that um, sees ourselves holding on to this tiny sliver of land surrounded by enemies, right? So if, if you compare ourselves to the Palestinians, we recognize ourselves as having the power. We don't view this simply as an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We view it as an Israeli-Arab conflict. Yep. Uh, not only Arab, but, you know, Iran as well, right? So an Israeli-Jewish-Muslim conflict. Uh, we're terrified of Iran uh, having nuclear weapons one day. We have Hezbollah to the north with hundreds of thousands of rockets pointed to us. We have Hamas in the south with tens of thousands of rockets pointed towards us. Um, we have relative peace with Jordan and Egypt, but you know, no one trusts that when push comes to shove, that peace will last. So we do have the power, but it's not hard. It shouldn't be hard to understand given our history. And even given that we've, we've almost lost wars in the past, like 72 Yom Kippur war, we, you know, we were, we were losing. We lost a lot of territory. If it wasn't for the, the help of the United States, you know, we, we may not have, survived. So we, we recognize how fragile and delicate what we have here is that we very much, the, you know, the iron wall 
very much still exists. You know, we are we are defending this tiny strip of land in a hostile region um, against people who have not been shy in their aspiration to to destroy us. So I, I know this sounds crazy for a Palestinian to hear because a Palestinian feels like they have, you know, they they live under the boot of an Israeli soldier. So I, I, I recognize that it's an interesting uh, paradigm that it's not as simple as viewing it as weak versus powerful. It's true we have the power when it comes to Palestinians, but we don't feel like our existence here is so simple and so eternal. We see that we are in the potential for being genocided again if we don't take the right steps today to ensure our security on this land. You know, on um, so le let's go back to one, one of the things that I find in, in the research that I do, the chapter in Palestinian history that I find to be maybe the most fascinating. And the, the, the biggest question that I had when I, when, um, when I really knuckled down in my obsession to understanding, to understanding Palestine was the early interactions between Palestinians and Zionists. So for their part, the Palestinians did not view, did not universally view Zionism as a unique threat to Palestine. Part of the reason for that was because there were other colonial projects going on. The, the, the Russians had settlements in Palestine. The Germans had settlements in Palestine. The Americans had a colony. The British had colonies. The French had colonies. Uh, this was something related to something called the Ottoman capitulations. So now their story, maybe somebody will ask about it later. The Palestinians did not view the Zionists as a unique problem. However, within about 20 years of their arrival, they did recognize that, Palestine, that, that the Zionists were a unique problem, that there, there was something peculiar about these people that was different. And actually what was different was Jewish, Jewish supremacy, because in the places where Zionists were buying land, by and large, they wanted to expel the indigenous population. The first case of expulsion that I saw, that I was able to find, was in a place called Khirbet Duran in 1892. The first one that I was able to come across. Prior to that, I, ca I can't find any documented from 1882 to 1892, but I found one in 1892. And they're consistent thereafter. There are cases of Fallahin being expelled from their homes from 1892, of course, all the way till 1948, right? Never ends after that. But with that, we have conversations between Theodore Herzl and Yusuf Liya al Khalidi. We have conversations between um, Eliezer ben Yehuda and Ruhi al Khalidi and Saad al Husseini. And one of the things that you find consistently from the Palestinian position in every single one of those cases Yusuf Liya, Ruhi al Khalidi, and Saad al Husseini, who were Palestinian leaders in their own time, of all of them recognizing or all of them saying in almost as many words, nobody denies the Jews belong in Palestine. Every single one of them said that in their, in, in their um, either in their letter writing or in the interview that they had. And in some cases they said, like Saad al-Husseini said, let them come by the thousands, even by the tens of thousands, but not to establish a state. Here, because there's already a people living here. Now, Eliezer ben Yehuda, who uh, in his private writings had his own intentions, but comes back and you know says to them, but this is going to benefit you. 
uh, you're gonna, there's gonna be infrastructure projects and all these things. And anyways, they agree to disagree and they go on. But all of them make that initial recognition. Now, here's something really important to understand about pre-Zionist Palestine. Palestine sits at the mouth of three continents. And so with a, the, um, and, and Palestine has been continuously inhabited for 7,000 years. 7,000 years of continuous inhabitation at the mouth of three continents ensures unsurprisingly that you're going to develop some indigenous mechanisms to deal with the subject of diversity. It turns out that diversity is in and of itself indigenous to Palestine. And so if an area that has developed indigenous mechanisms to deal with diversity has a severe case of rejection of one particular colonial project, what does that tell you about that colonial project? Now, one could say, well, no, they rejected the Jews because they're anti-Semitic. And I've heard this, right? They're willing, anybody else could come into Palestine, right? But they rejected the Jews because they were anti-Semitic. This is nonsense. Consider that, um, you know, we talk about dealing with hard truths and guilt and uncomfortable realities. I identify very, very strongly in my Islamic identity, very strongly. And yet I have to cope with what I've learned about the Armenian genocide. Like I have to, I have to deal with that. I have to, I have to recognize that other people who call themselves Muslims whether they killed 60,000, 600,000, 1.5 million, how many, how many young girls have to be raped for me to be okay with it? What's the number? 10, 20? Like what, what is the, I don't have a minimum number. One is too many, right? One is one, is one too many. And yet the Armenians who came having been annihilated along the journey made themselves home in Palestine, maintained their identity in Palestine, still view themselves as uniquely Armenian, and yet you have interacted with Armenian Palestinians who consider themselves just as much Palestinian as they are Armenian. We have indigenous, we, we've always had indigenous mechanisms to, um, to embrace new communities. Maybe not in the numbers that the Zionists were looking for, frankly, okay, there is, there is a problem there. But, but there were always these indigenous mechanisms to deal with that. And it is the fact that Zionism came with a uniquely supremacist ideology that made that impossible. And you could see it as early as the turn of the 20th century. So I agree with you very much so that the reason we were rejected was not because we were Jews. And, you know, I, I didn't speak to this, but you did say that Palestinians, that the Israel kind of needs a, a boogeyman. And you said the boogeyman was anti-Semitism. And now Palestinians became the anti-Semites. And I, I do see signs of that. I, I don't think this is something intentional or explicit. I think it's I think it's just been like an, a natural manifestation of of, uh, of our discourse um, when it comes to the conflict. But it's true that most Jews today would say anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, yet there's no reason why a Palestinian should be anything but anti-Zionist, given yes. what Zionism means to them. 
Right. So I, I, I fully recognize that. Um, I like to look at it as sometimes anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, but not inherently. And often, often, I don't want to get too deep in that conversation, but it comes from different definitions of Zionism. When when a Jew says Zionism, they're just saying it just means Jewish self-determination on our ancestral homeland. But Palestinians, when they say Zionism, they're talking about Jewish supremacist, a Jewish supremacist state on their ancestral homeland. So why? How could they be okay with that? So it, it is important to understand that dynamic, and I, I fully recognize that. Jew, you know, my family moved to to the land in 1812. Right. We lived in Hebron. We lived peacefully with their Palestinian neighbors for, for, uh, I guess, over a century. Um, I think that what the Zionists should have done was to come to this land and try to build a binational state, right? Uh, make a make a case to the people living here. Let's build a state together. We have resources from Europe. Uh, we could get the international community to to support what we're doing. Let's have an Isra an Isra a Jewish Arab national homeland, whatever you want to call it. Again, would that have worked? I I really don't know, but I think the chance of that being accepted by Palestinians would have been much greater than an exclusive Jewish state. That's for sure. But now, you know, a hundred years later, when we've been at conflict for a century, and there's so much either hate or fear or distrust between one another, the path to achieve a binational state will take many generations, many generations of us not fearing one another. If we were to move to a binational state tomorrow, and I know this is becoming the, the increasingly popular um, position that Palestinians take. They say, let's just have a binational state. But the reason why Palestinians are comfortable with that is because they recognize that they're going to eventually have a demographic majority, or at least be close. The worst possible thing is for us to share a state and for us to be competing over demographic control. That would end in disaster. A binational state would work when we don't care who has demographic majority, when there's no fear of being a minority in, in the home, in our land, right? But because both nations fear each other or hate each other, by a binational state, what perhaps could have worked 100 years ago and perhaps could work in 100 years from now, today would likely end in disaster. So I don't think that working towards that solution in the near term is um, viable or just. I think we should look at solutions that give both people sovereignty over a piece of land, both people autonomy over their respective areas, whether, and it doesn't even need to be us here, you there, it could be on a neighborhood basis as well. There's many creative ways in which we can do this and work towards the goal of a binational state one day. Um, uh, so, so that that's how I look at it. I, I definitely understand the the sentiment. I, I get why Zionism was rejected in '48, and I understand why it's still rejected today. But I'm trying to really look at real practical solutions for for what we could possibly do. Um, so much, so much to say, and I, I'm trying to wrap all of my thoughts into a coherent message. Um, one of the uh, 
uh, more primitive creatures in the chat said that um, Bassam is okay with Jordanians, uh, Jordan killing thousands of Palestinians, um, uh, but not okay with Israel and what it does to the Palestinians. Both of my parents survived uh, the Black September War, you imbecile. So if, the, if there's anything that I am familiar with, it is that chapter of Palestinian history. So just sit down, relax, smoke your vape, and just listen to the rest of this conversation. Yeah, um, ha hater, haters gonna hate. <laughs> so okay. I guess you're, I'm not as famous as you are, Adar, so I'm, <laughs> I don't have to deal with this as much. So, uh, but in any case, uh, so look, the subject of a binational state is fascinating because it's not a new idea. There are, look, for all of the Jewish conspiracies out there, Zionism only ever had two superpowers. That's it, two. Number one. That, like there were two things that made Zionists uniquely successful as a national movement. And were I not the victim of that national movement, I'd have more admiration for it as opposed to loathing. Um, number one, the Zionists had an unrelenting goal, which was an exclusively Jewish state. Okay. And number two, to achieve that unrelenting goal, they were willing to stack the deck. In the First World War, there were Zionists that fought for the Ottoman Empire. There were Zionists that fought for the British. There were Zionists that fought for the Germans. They bet on every outcome. At the end, whatever the outcome, the end result needed to be a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Now, I don't want to oversimplify. And you could find um, calls for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine from the, from the 19th century. They're there, right? I've shared some of them with you over. Anybody wants to see them, I can share them. But Zionism had um, an ebb and flow depending on what was happening in the world and responded and adapted to the, the changes in the world um, as they saw fit. There was a long phase of, of Zionism from the 1880s all the way to, 19, to 1914, which tried to work within the institution of the Ottoman Empire. Right to create an Ottoman to create a, a Jewish homeland within the Ottoman framework. There was a time in the 1908 Young Turk Revolution where uh, Zionists were unsure: Do we want to adopt Ottoman citizenship, or do, do we not want to have Ottoman citizenship? And if we do, are we part of the Ottoman social fabric? Eliezer ben Yehuda was one of the people who favored this. So there were opportunities for Zionists to pursue a more, as you've, called, uh, as you've called it here, a binational arrangement. The problem was that the vast majority of Zionists wanted an exclusively Jewish state. This is the reason why they were expelling Fallahim. You know, if you read um, anything before 1917, so anything before um, like uh, British conquest of Jerusalem, uh, anything before the Balfour Declaration, the Palestinians had two major complaints, two major complaints about the Zionists. I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but you read it again and again and again and again. Two major complaints. Number one, these new Jews 
do not want to mix in the rest of the society. They want to stay secluded. Number two, and this seems silly, but it was a common complaint. Number two, they're not nice. They treat us with contempt. And Ahad Ham saw this. He saw that the Zionists were treating the Palestinian fellahin with contempt. And he warned them that there is, a, there is something simmering beneath the surface here. They're quiet for now, but eventually we're going to keep treating them like scum and something's, gonna, something's got to give. So Ahad Ham, of course, being a cultural Zionist. And anyways, I, I, I figure that you know who he is and, who, and the listeners um, know who he is. And so with that, with that at the core of Zionism, became very difficult, I go so far as to say nearly impossible, for them to have allowed for a binational arrangement. And there are unique things within the Jewish experience that, um, that uh, reveal to why they would have been resistant for that, resistant to that. Um, when you're a diaspora community and you're constantly facing the threat of annihilation in your journeys around Europe, I understand that you may not want to mix with everyone else. You develop some social quirks and yeah, okay, I get that. But there were numerous other opportunities for a binational state. There were calls for, there are, so what I'm getting to here is there are reasons why a binational state did not happen earlier. Um, there was a time where the British and the Zionists were pushing the Palestinians for a binational state. This is maybe you know about and maybe you don't. They were pushing the Palestinian leadership for a binational state in 1918. And by a binational state, I mean one under British sovereignty. But it came with a condition, full acceptance of the Balfour Declaration. So this binational state still would have been a Jewish homeland that took 90% of the population and transformed them into the non-Jewish population, which of course was a non-starter. When the Palestinians came around to the idea of a binational state in the late 1920s that didn't recognize the Balfour Declaration in principle, and the British were on board for it, the Zionists rejected it. The Zionists actually always favored partition because again, they preferred an exclusively Jewish state. What, wasn't it true, though, that Palestinians also rejected a binational state? They also weren't too on board with something like that? I believe it was the, the white papers that... Um, the Peel Commission. Was it the Peel Commission or was it oh, prior sorry, sorry. to the Peel Commission? Sorry, Did, you're, talking about, you're talking about partition or you're talking about a binational state? No, a binational state. I believe it was the... I, what's the exact term? Uh, the, the white papers? Uh, it was in the 20s it was proposed. Um, or am, so I, am I missing on my dates? Uh, maybe. I don't believe uh, there was the King Crane Commission in the 1920s. Oh, no, it was, it, was, it, was, it was 1939. No, my bad. Yeah. So, okay, yeah. that was right after Peel. Yeah. So, so the 1939 white paper is fascinating um, because after three years of Palestinians revolting against the British, that saw one in 10 Palestinian men dead, exiled, imprisoned, or wounded. Devastating devastating um, uh, counterinsurgency campaign uh, run by Ord Wingate and the Black and Tan units. Um, the British then 
went and conceded to every single Palestinian demand. Suddenly, mm. right? Neville Chamberlain basically came out and said, uh, halt to Jewish immigration capped at 75,000 a year for five years and then less than that thereafter. Um, a, a Palestinian state, a binational state within five years, you gotta, like basically agreeing to every single demand. By 1939, first of all, there is no Palestinian leadership anymore. It does not exist because it has been dismantled. Moreover, what remnants of the Palestinian leadership existed did not trust the British. Like, it, it is, it is um, always remarkable to me. I'm not, by the way, I'm not accusing you of doing this, right? But like when um, anytime this conversation comes up and a fact gets pulled out of a hat, um, depending on who's talking, sometimes they want to ignore the three years or the 30 years that immediately preceded it. But they did not trust the British. So the Palestinian leadership that did exist did not believe the British were actually serious, even if they were. Now, another thing uh, that's worth mentioning is why, why did the British do Is it because they suddenly had a change of heart? And like, is it because suddenly the British became nice? because they felt that these, the indigenous inhabitants of this land deserve their rights, had nothing to do with any of that. The reality was that throughout the Palestinian revolt against the British, between 1936 and 1939, Italian and German propaganda was pumping stories of the massacres committed against the Palestinians in Cairo, in Damascus, in Algiers, all over the Arab and Muslim world. And with, world, with the, the clouds of war looming in the horizon, the British saw that they cannot antagonize the entire Arab world, let's throw them a carrot. That's fascinating. I actually didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that little bit of uh, history. I, I, really, I really appreciate these conversations with you because it's like, it's uh, a crash course on, on the history of the <laughs> land. I do this a lot. I, I, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're in agreement about the that there should have been an, an attempt to create a binational state. But let, let's, you know, let's talk about the present, right? Do Do you think that's what is that what you'd like to see the solution today? Is that what you want to see the Palestinian resistance uh, achieve a, a binational state from the river to the sea? Um, what it's called? What the flag is? is is less important but is that what you're looking for and do you really yeah. think that would work given our 100 years of conflict with one another so let's talk about let's pretend for a moment that you and i actually have power like you and i are actually important we're not just two bald guys having a chat on youtube um if if i were to give a path forward any path forward as a first step not as a conclusion, as a first step, needs to begin with an unequivocal, unconditional apology and recognition of guilt on the part of the Zionists. It needs to begin with that. I am a Palestinian, but I am also a settler colonialist on another person's land. I'm, I'm not telling you that Canada does a great job at this. We're, we're still learning. There are countries that do a much better job, like New Zealand. They're, they're much better at this. But I need to recognize my status as a settler colonialist here. 
And despite the fact that my dad came here in the 70s and not the 1870s, and while my dad was not personally responsible in the ethnic cleansing of indigenous people, I benefit from the oppression of these people. Like my, my existence on this country exists on stolen resources. I need to recognize that. And Zionists need to recognize something similar. You have the difficult job of going and telling your people to apologize. I have the much more difficult job of telling my people to accept that apology because they don't have to. It's not reasonable to ask them to accept that apology. Asking a Palestinian to accept the apology of the Zionists and accept the path forward is like asking a rape victim to accept the apology of the rapist and then to engage in the arranged marriage thereafter. The rapist apologizing is not the difficult part. It's accepting the apology that's much more difficult because it's not a reasonable thing to ask. I'm not asking them to do something that is reasonable. But moving forward past that, once you could dismantle the institution of Jewish supremacy upon Palestinians, you could just begin, then you could start talking about federalist system, representation, blah, blah, blah. You could start talking about all of the details, right? How many of the, how many Palestinians come back to each village, which villages they're going to live in, what the flag is going to look like. Do we pronounce hummus with a ha or a ha or all, all of that becomes trivial relative to that initial first step, admission of guilt. So, I struggle seeing that as being a viable first step. It would need to come with like a greater package. It would need to be come with some kind of a peace agreement. An admission of guilt, because again, an admission of guilt is laughable to most Israelis who just think that we've just been defending ourselves. You know, we had every right to want to return home and you didn't have a right to try to kill us, right? That That's that's our narrative. So it's like, what the hell are we going to admit guilt for? I don't even know how you, you change the conversation on a national level for that to even be viable. I could see that happening at like stage three of reconciliation after there's mutual recognition of, of one another, after we both have our own states. Like I, again, I'm not, I'm not opposed to it, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, I don't, I don't see it being realistic for for israelis to ever get behind and i think israelis would also like um an apology and again th this is something that you hear me say this you're like yeah palestinians are never going to apologize we're we're the victim we're the victims here mm -hmm. but when israelis you know think about their their children and and siblings and friends who were killed in terror attacks you know they're like well you know i'm sorry you feel like you're oppressed my daughter was blown up and you know yeah. I, I want an apology for that so I, I wonder how we actually if we only look at things through a, a power dynamic what, what you're saying may, makes perfect sense but people who benefit from power dynamics are no less human and they mm -hmm. they know they, they suffer no less from from um being victims of terror from losing loved ones so it's going to be very hard for, for for them to not want something in reciprocate reciprocation so 
I'd I I think it would need to go both ways, and I don't see it being step one without like a greater mutual recognition. So mm -hmm. it it would it could be part of a peace agreement between our nations. Um, well, let let me ask um, mm -hmm. because this is not unprecedented. So Americans went from enslaving Africans to not right, which was a, a much more severe power dynamic, right? And you went, for, they went from literally categorizing these people as inhuman to not. Now, what was in between those things was a civil war. Uh, so I'm not telling you that this transition is painless, but there is a point where if this does not happen, if you have any formulation where this does not occur, the only outcome is subjugation of Palestinians in a Jewish supremacist state. Whatever, whatever you proceed with thereafter. It, this is why, like your, um, your incredulity at that possibility is because the Israeli state education system, Israeli municipalities, um, the state instruments of coercion, the entire apparatus of the state of Israel is founded in this bizarre world where the Zionist project, which was an inherently offensive action is viewed as defensive and Palestinian resistance, which is fundamentally defensive is viewed as offensive. So let's look at like, uh, by the way, I but, said but, this. But again, so yeah. I, I agree, but that, that doesn't take away from uh, from the people who have been victims of this yep. conflict, right? So uh, it, it, it's it's true what you're saying. Well, well, Adar, but let's look at I, it's just it's yeah, just two sorry. things. On, on on one level, mm -hmm. on one level, imagine what it would take for a nation in an instant to reverse their entire narrative. Right. I don't think that, I think the only time something like this happens is after devastating defeat uh, by, by another military. So like you could look at Nazi Germany, you look at uh, uh, J Japanese imperialists, right? They went their ideology, their national story changed very quickly. But that took destroying uh, their, their countries. Like t total like a, 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 an atomic bomb being dropped on Japan is, is what it took for that to happen. For it to happen. Um, in a more organic uh, method, which, which again, uh, you know, the idea of Israel being uh, d destroyed by another military doesn't seem li like it, like it's going to happen. You know, we are we are strong. It's true. It's true. We're we're scared. We we don't know what the future holds, but um, we we are a very strong military, especially for this region. For it to happen organically. What actually needs to happen for an entire national narrative to shift, either de destroying that country or a more organic process in which we slowly understand our role in each other's grievances. So that, that's why I'm, I'm hesitant towards the starting point of a recognition of guilt, because I, I don't see that happening. Um, and also, I, it, that, that does not take away from the fact that there are Jewish victims here, right? Like, so someone said, you know, look how peaceful my surroundings is. That's true. I, I, I live a relatively good life. Um, I'm not reminded of the conflict on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, the reason I do this is because I don't want my 
security to be at the expense of another group of people. I don't want my liberty to be at, you know, at the expense of Palestinian well-being. But I'm not victimized day to day. That being said, I've lost five friends to war and terror. Um, and obviously that, that takes a toll on, on me. Obviously that hurts. Um, and I'm just one, I'm just one person, but there's not a single Israeli who hasn't lost a loved one to war or terror. So I don't see it being entirely one-sided in, in the, in the recognition because we have been victimized as well by this conflict. Again, we could say, we could have a conversation who's been victimized more. We're going to be in full agreement there, but it doesn't take away from somebody who lost a loved one and how they feel. Yeah, I don't have um I don't have a painless answer for you. Like I wish I could tell you, look, the solution is the way that you do this painlessly is by reforming the uh, Israeli education system to include Palestinian voices to blah 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 blah, right? I don't think that will happen. And I don't think that will happen because uh I think the nature of the Israeli state is as I've said numerous times throughout this whole um, conversation, right? The nature of the Israeli state is fundamentally Jewish supremacist and Jewish chauvinist, so that will not happen. And so that is why we have now made full circle. That's why I have a problem with normalization. I know the conclusion that I want to get to. And I know the only conclusion that I want to get to and the only viable path forward starts with a recognition of guilt. But to get there, Israel has to transform. So, transform so much that it ceases to be nearly everything that it is. Now, whether that is done willingly, like the whites in South Africa, and by, I mean, willingly is an abuse of that word, right? The whites in South Africa faced enormous international pressure, enormous resistance, armed resistance, a boycott campaign, blah, 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 blah. They faced all of that before they finally said, this project is no longer viable. What's happening now, right now, is precisely the opposite in Israel, which is the right wing, and by right wing, I'm using uh, Israeli terms of right and left, right? So what you recognize as the right wing is emboldened by the international community because they engage in further settlement expansion. They engage in the ethnic cleansing of Palestinian neighborhoods. They are destroying homes in Silwan as we speak right now, and they are not punished for it. And so there needs to be a concerted effort of resistance of anti-normalization to bring, to force Israel at the point where it looks in the mirror and says, is there something like if everyone in the world agrees, whether they support Palestinians or not actively or passively, if everyone in the world can see the situation for what it is and we can't, should we do some soul searching? Is there something wrong with the way that we've treated these people? That, that's the most, what's the, the, the nature of Palestinian resistance right now is the most painless way to bring global jury to that conclusion. A much more, like if I was you, and uh, you know, you and I have agreed. Okay, khalas, we you got to take this. Uh, you got to take this message to your people. The messages I see it would look like this. Um, we in eighteen in the eighteen eighties, we were victims of pogroms the likes of which you cannot even imagine. 
we were subjected to insane levels of violence. Levels of violence that were so severe that we got on a boat and sailed to a land that we read about in a book that we don't believe in. Most of them were atheists. We read about in a book that we don't believe in, but we got on a boat to just to escape. And when we escaped, we had very little trust of anyone around us. And that persisted for decades. And we made serious mistakes, mistakes that resulted in the ethnic cleansing and the dispossession of the people from this land. And for that, we apologize. However, as the stronger party, if you do not want to engage with us, then the status quo will continue. And not only that, but um, we have the ability to further ethnically cleanse, whatever, whatever. As a weaker party, um, should you try to do to us what we did to you, which you may feel is morally or ethically justified, you will end up looking at yourselves in the mirror and seeing what we see in the mirror today. Each one of you will uproot a family and will destroy a life the same way that we have, and you will have a reckoning 100 years from now dealing with the pain of that. Now, whether that message will resonate with anyone on your side of the fence, I don't know. I can't say. But I don't have a painless mechanism to get you there. So, uh, again, this, this comes down to there's a lot we we really see eye to eye to I think but yeah. and I think we ultimately have we we want the same goal here we we want to see all the people from the river to the sea free on on this land I think when it comes to approach is really where we uh where where we view things differently and you know I'm coming from a vantage point I understand Israelis and the Israeli mentality way better than you and you understand Palestinians and the right. Palestinian a mentality way better than I do so neither of us see the whole picture we're gonna need another two hours to <laughs> to, right. to dish, dish this one out I, I, I don't just, know if your comment section is usually this aggressive we we do have a half hour left the, the, the reason I'm not gonna give like um, uh, a long rebuttal now is because I do want us to have yeah, time yeah. for audience questions because I see audiences yeah. is, is feisty um, and I'll explain why in a moment, but I, I just want to reemphasize just one final point that I very much think the fastest way to Palestinian liberation is allowing Jews on this land to feel safe. This mm -hmm. seems contradictory to many forms of resistance, but it seems like the more scared we are, the less we care about Palestinians or their national aspirations. Yeah. I, so uh, again, I, I'm I'm really just summarizing how I see it. I know you fundamentally disagree with this approach. We could find more time to to try to work out our differences here, but I think Jews need to feel safe. The more safe we feel, the more free Palestinians will be. Um, now, 
I, 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 I can give you the final. You, 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 yeah. you could take the final word on this. Just try to keep it short, yeah. and then, um, and then I do want to go to audience questions. Uh, you know, the the last thing that I wanted to say has almost nothing to do with what I've already said, which is that um, I have two children. I have two young children. Anyone who thinks, anyone who leaves this conversation thinking that I enjoy the prospect of any family being ripped apart of like any color in any part of the world uh, is a crazy person. Like I don't read headlines of some kid in Stirot riding on his bike being hit by a Qassam rocket. I don't enjoy that. I don't like hearing that. It doesn't make me proud. It doesn't make me happy. I don't celebrate that. Like I, I have enough humanity to be able to, to see that. What I am talking about is what I think are the few options of the path forward. But anyone who thinks I take any joy in saying, you know, I'm just responding to some of the vitriol that I'm seeing, you're out of your mind. But off to some questions. Cool, off to questions. Now, a, a little bit about um, some of the critique, just a more general overview. So. You, you've said a lot of things that are inflammatory to, to Israelis, um, <laughs> and I didn't jump right in and, and um, push back. Yeah. And there's a few reasons for that. First of all, I just don't get triggered by, by criticism. If right. you were to say something that I viewed as blatantly false, I'd correct you, but a lot of it comes down to terminology and uses of words. I'm comfortable with who I am. I'm comfortable with who my country is in terms of, I, I know Israel for good and for bad. I love Israel, yeah. yet I see her as highly flawed, and I'm dedicated to to making Israel a better place. So, you know, when when people critique Israel, uh, all good. You know, the yeah. the more you come to terms with who you are and who your nation is, the the less offended you are by by criticism. So, if if people in the in the chat are upset that I didn't push back on terms like Jewish supremacy um, or, or stuff like that. It's because I, I am in no way offended when Bassam uses these terminologies, and I know exactly what he means by it. When he says settler colonialism, he's not saying, and again, I'm speaking for you, but, but uh, just you could correct me if you think I'm wrong. When Bassam says settler colonialism, he's not saying we don't have connection to this land. He's not saying we don't belong to this land. He's saying the way we return to this land used settler colonial. Settler colonial project. Yeah, yes. Exactly. When yes. he says Jewish supremacy, he's not saying that means we are going to have Palestinian slaves. He's just saying the nature of the state is Jewish. Jews will have priority and privilege over other groups of people. You Which is a problem, that, but yes. Yeah. Right. So, so, so th th this is what Bassam means by the term. So now I'm not going to get all worked up over it. Um, I'd rather focus on, on the gist of the conversation, not, not inflammatory um, rhetoric that I don't find personally inflammatory. So just keep that in mind, chat. Um, the, the, again, the more you come to terms with who you are and who your nation is, the the, the easier critique becomes. Um, so we're going to start taking questions. Uh, Bassam, if you see something in the chat that you um, want to respond to, let me know. I'll pull it up. Uh, we'll prioritize super chats, of course, if anybody wants to toss a super chat. I saw that. Um, Shy, you, you did a super chat earlier. I can't pull it up now, but just re-ask the question, not in a super chat. I'll, I'll read it. Um, 
And Iran, I, I saw that you were also upset by me not pushing back on, on certain things. If you want, you can make the case now of things that you think Bassam said that was wrong. We could ask him about those. And when you asked if I'm comparing Israel to Nazi Germany, no, not at all. Some like just using an example of a different country to, to paint a picture does not mean you're saying that country is like this country. This is something people so so often mistake when people use examples. Just because you use an example, you're just trying to find a parallel, one instance in, in which it's the same. It's not saying Israel's Nazi Germany. So, you know, don't don't, don't take examples as like a literal comparison. Um, Rajia, five pounds. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bassam. We are in pro-Palestinian movement and not jumping for joy when we hear that innocent Israelis are harmed. Thanks, Rajia. Um, Nicholas goes, Bassam, would you accept apology for Nakba Naksa occupation, but not apology for Zionism? I can give you the first three, but not the last one. It's just impossible for me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks wow, for the what, question, Nicholas. I think that's a great interesting question. One. What a great question. Um, Nicholas, I suppose that's how you define Zionism. If you are, um, if you interpret Zionism, Look, the whole idea of Zionism and Jewish supremacy is something that um, was pretty constant, was a pretty constant Zionist belief from uh, from the like official formulation of Zionism in, in the 1890s onward. If your vision of Zionism is more about, um, well, okay, if your vision of Zionism is more about a return to a place that Jews feel that they have an ancestral connection and to live alongside and with the indigenous population. Fine, but that is a unique and admittedly um, uh, minority position of what Zionism ever was. So oftentimes in conversations like this, you end up with um, a lot of subjectivity. Right, of someone saying, no, that's not Zionism to me. Zionism to, uh, Peter Baynard did this when he was talking, uh, speaking with Yehuda. And, and I'm, not, um, I'm not saying that Peter Baynard is lying. He's just redefined his Zionism to mean something else. So if you have an interpretation of Zionism that is more about um, Hebrew restoration, that is more about uh, the Jewish national movement, of um, bringing the Jews of the world under a single umbrella of a single nation. Those aren't really things that have a whole lot to do with me. I, I don't know if I ever, um, I don't know if I've answered your question, but it really de depends on how you're defining Zionism. Cool. Thank you. I, th I think that was an inch very good question and, and a, a good response. I, I think really what most people mean by Zionism is recognizing why we a belong to this land why we felt the need to come back and why we and i guess this is probably the version of zionism you're going to have trouble accepting but why we feel the need to have a demographic majority on this land because it's the only thing that ensures our security so i imagine the last part you're you're not going to be able to get on board with but the other aspects of zionism like the fact that we have a right to return, the fact that we have a right to self-determination on our ancestral homeland, that's a that's a Zionism that you can get behind, correct? So, sorry, ask that last part again. 
So the, the, the aspect of Zionism that I think you and many Palestinians can certainly get behind is the idea that Jews have a right to live on this land, that we're of this land, that we have a right to self-determine self on this land. The part of Zionism that most Palestinians greatly struggle with is the idea of having certain preference or priority towards Jews on a certain piece of land. That's something that most Palestinians probably won't be able to get on board with. But the idea of Jews self-determining on this land and recognizing that Jews are from this land is something that it seems most Palestinians can get on board with. Not only can they get on board with, but they were on board with for for a 1400 years like for for as long as um look the the um identity of palestinians is something we didn't really talk about a whole lot in this in this conversation um and i'm not going to go on another rant because i know that we're trying to rapid fire through through some questions needless to say again that there were already indigenous mechanisms to deal with influxes of Circassians and Kurds and Armenians and Turks and other peoples who were not necessarily Muslim either. Other peoples who just melted into the society because indigeneity was something that was, um, or sorry, diversity was something that was indigenous to Palestine. And so uh, had the Zionists gone about things differently, history would have played out very differently in, in my estimation. Cool. Um, let's see what else we got. You see anything you want to? Um... Um, so I, I feel like you spoke on this, but I see Noam Toz asking it repeatedly. So maybe you want to give a short explanation for why you think the apology should only be um, one-sided. Yeah. In in what other world? does the indigenous population apologize for resisting settler colonialism? Like, do we ask, like, in, in where else? This, this to me is, uh, is nonsensical. Now, I understand on an individual level, somebody saying, my child was hit by a rocket and I've had to suffer with it. I get that. But now let me ask you, today, at least, publicly, right? Who do the Germans blame for the Second World War? Who does who blame? Who do the Germans blame for the Second World War? I don't know, the Jews? <laughs> so look, at least officially, and to the, uh, when I was doing my master's, my learning partner was a, a, a German woman, a brilliant, brilliant woman. And, um, she told me kind of repeatedly about the hatred that they have for the Nazis, that they are brought up hating the Nazis and what the Nazis have done. Oh, no, Germans I am, today. Germans today, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. I am not making a direct equivalent between the Jews and the Zionists and the Nazis. And okay, just get over it. And let me let me make the rest of my point. Um, but who dropped the bombs on Berlin and Munich? Who dropped America, who dro America Russia, the England, Royal yeah. Air Force, the Soviet Union, whoever. But who do they hold responsible for that? They hold the Nazis responsible for it. The resistance is a response to something. It is a response to Israeli colonization. 
without Israeli colonization, without Jewish supremacy, without the Zionist project manifesting in the way that it did, you would not have this. It, do I expect you to be on board with it? Do I expect that? I could tell you what I believe to be true. I can't make it palatable. I can't make it drinkable for you. Doesn't mean it's not gonna be bitter going down. Okay, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, so Noam, I know you're not pleased with that response, but um, this isn't viewed as a war. This is viewed as one side dominating the other. Why should the oppressed group apologize for what? For defending themselves? So that's, um, that, that, that's a narrative that I, that to an extent resonates with me. I don't, again, we, we discussed our disagreements here um, as to the likelihood of it happening and what needs to happen before an apology happens. But um, I, I definitely understand and accept your perspective on this. Um, Look, uh, there's um, a recurring question that keeps coming up about the Grand Mufti. Um, and I'll address this very quickly to, what's his name? The Church of Delicious Meat. It's hard to take you seriously, buddy, with a name like that. Um, look, the Grand Mufti was not evil. He was stupid. Okay. Um, he was an inept and conniving and manipulative man who inherited a very, very important position from a very, very notable family. And he made repeated poor decisions in his leadership and is largely... You know, funny, if you ask the average Palestinian about Haj Amin al-Husseini, I don't want to say most, many Palestinians have no idea who he is and relegated to the pages of history. Not because they're embarrassed by him, as may be the, the assumption that, you're, that you'd come to, but because um, he was ineffectual. He didn't do much. He, he did not do much that, what, that in, the, in the position that he had, he was uh, not good at what he was doing. So uh, if, you, if you wanna sit here and beat the Grand Mufti, you're pushing against an open door. Like, I, I, have, I, have nothing, I have nothing to say about him. Do you think that Jews are indigenous to this land? Your identity is a story that you tell about yourself. The most important thing about your identity is not about DNA. It's about, it's about the story. That's what brings you together. Identity is a kind of a, it's a social construct. And the story of the Jews is indigenous to this land. The story of the Jews is indigenous to Palestine. Take all of the um, Khazar conversion, blah, blah, blah. Take, I don't care about any of that. Like you could, you could be a Jew who has never, whose ancestors never set foot in Palestine and the land may still resonate with you. Would you feel the same if uh, a Canadian in indigenous tribe was kicked out of Canada a few hundred years ago and they eventually 
we're able to return? Like, at, at what point does a group of people lose their indigeneity? This is a great, um, what's his name? Uh, Hillel Cohen in uh, a book, Year Zero. I think his name is Hillel Cohen. Year Zero of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There's a list of questions that I have that I kind of call the questions before the conversation. Um, and this is one of those questions of what does it mean to be a settler colonialist? What does it mean to be indigenous? And does indigeneity expire? So with the few minutes that we have remaining, let's look into some of this. A lot of the people in your chat are exploding because they're saying, how could we be settler colonialists when we are indigenous? And my, my rebuttal to that is why do you think those two things are mutually exclusive? Imagine this, Correct. white America, white America, to where are they indigenous? To Europe, white America, Irish America, Italian America, Greek America, the Americans who consider themselves white, they're indigenous to Europe. If America were to go now set up military bases, settlements, um, extraction of resource projects, whatever it is in Europe, would that be a colonial project? The answer is resoundingly yes. If the Phoenicians in Carthage, in ancient Carthage, went back and conquered what is modern day Lebanon, would they have been colonialists after an absence of hundreds of years? Who, by the way, left as a persecuted people. By the way, Americans also left as a persecuted people. The Americans, the white Americans who left Europe also left as a persecuted Christian community. If they were to come back and colonize the place that they were, that they were ancestrally from, that would be colonization. If the Phoenicians did that, that would be colonization. Are you a fan of science fiction? Yeah. Okay. So I, I read a ton of fantasy and science fiction. And like a, a very common trope in, in modern sci-fi is the colonization of space, right? So I want to ask you a hypothetical. Imagine if a group of Earthlings, right, were exiled to Mars. And 3,000 years later, they came back to Earth. Are they Martians or are they Earthlings? The, the um, God, well, I, I, yeah, I mean, so, yeah. so the, the way I like to understand Zionism is an indigenous rights movement that used settler colonial tactics to achieve their goals. That seems to be a perfectly legitimate way to, to have both, both these ideas coexist. I think, I, I, again, it's going to take time for many Israelis to acknowledge the settler colonial methods that were enacted, you know, but, but I, think, I think that framing is one that works. It recognizes that we are from this land. We are a people who returned to this land after, after thousands of years of yearning, you know, our, our prayers, our, our prayers, you know, we pray towards Jerusalem. We, we talk about next year in Jerusalem. Um, it just wasn't viable. It took it took a few desperate and um, ambitious people to make it happen against all odds, but it was it was deep down in, in ambition for for a long time. So, I, I think the recognition that we're of this land and that we have a right to be from this land, while recognizing that in order to return, we did use settler colonial uh, methods that are not justified. I think that's a perfectly acceptable way to to frame. Um, who we are and how we returned. Um, 
There are you go ahead and uh, and pick something. I think we've probably got time for one more question. Sure. Well, I, I, another thing because I did see this this charge against you. You use the the rape rapist uh, again. It's it's just taking an analogy too literally. You said it would be like asking for an apology from the person who. I don't remember exactly how you used it, but, I but said you that did. It would be like. Um, you would be the one demanding that the rapist apologize. I would be the one asking the rape victim to accept the apologize, uh, the apology and the arranged marriage thereafter. And I own that and I stand by it. Right. So pe people were offended by that because they uh, don't like to, cons they, they don't. Yeah. Because yeah. a, a rape. Well, well, he, can I, can yeah, I, yeah, yeah. 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 Go ahead. Go ahead. Nobody. Nobody wants to believe that they are the antagonist in anybody's story. You are all the protagonists in your own story, and there are extras and antagonists around. And what I'm asking you to do is to reflect on the fact that you are very much the antagonist in somebody else's story. By the way, a real rapist, he's somebody's son, right? He's got parents that love him. He's, got, he's a protagonist in somebody, like a real rapist in real life. Right? He's a protagonist to somebody. He's a protagonist in his own view. So your offense by this is fine. Okay. But nobody ever is comfortable with the idea of viewing themselves as the antagonist in anybody else's story. Do you think I like thinking about the Muslims as the antagonist to the Armenians in Anatolia? I take pride in the fact that Armenians were able to come to Palestine among Palestinian Muslims and make themselves at home. This is what helps me sleep at night with all of, with everything that happened to the Armenians. What helps me sleep at night is to know that when they reached Palestine, they were at home. That they, they were treated well and the and the the collective memory of the Armenians honors that they honor that reality. Right. But I need to reflect on the fact that I could be the bad guy in somebody else's story and it may be justified. So, I, I again, I hear you. I think it's an analogy that works to prove a point, but I'll, I'm going to shine light on why it's offensive. Because for, for two reasons. First of all, rape is one of the most malicious acts anybody can, can do. So much of what we do that harms Palestinians is not with the intention of harming Palestinians. It's at the... It's with intention of self-preservation. So intention matters. So the intention is vastly different. And, and it's true that rape, I don't think when a, a rapist, their intention is to harm someone, it's for their own sexual desire. It's for desire. their own satisfaction. Yes, it's for I their own satisfaction. Say, yeah. Right, but, but, there, but there's a difference between harming, brutally harming somebody for your own satisfaction and doing it because you feel you need to, to survive. So that's one, that's one huge difference, intention. The other is that most Israelis, despite on a state level, the power imbalance, most Israelis are not guilty of harming Palestinians. They're just Israelis that are trying to live their lives. You could say they're guilty for not doing more to liberate Palestinians, but it's hard to expect somebody to dedicate their life to someone who they view as, as their enemy. So, you know, 
I, right. I would, so, so those I would, those two things, intention, and yeah. because individuals don't want to be compared to rapists when they're just trying to live their lives, it's going to be an inflammatory statement. I understood what you meant by it, but I'm tr yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to explain why it was yeah. why it was inflammatory for so many people. We we imagine colonialists like when I say settler colonialists, I think most of the people in the chat imagine a uh, British guy in a top hat with an Indian under his boot and like a Kenyan around his fist, right? Like, like in, in a vice grip. Um, do you think the, Al the French in Algeria felt like colonialists? You don't feel, I don't feel like a colonizer right now in my basement sitting here and having this nice conversation with you. You don't feel like a colonizer right now, right? You're not, you don't feel like you're actively engaged in colonialism, but no. I am and you are. This is what, for 99% for of people, this is what colonialism actually looks like. Palestinians often, we used to use the analogy, not used to, we still use the analogy as a rhetorical device. If somebody says like, explain to me what's happening in Palestine. And we say like, imagine you have a house and somebody comes into your house and says, I used to live here. And then now they won't leave. But then you go to the courts and the courts say, well, it's actually his house and blah, 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 blah. Right. Have you heard this kind of rhetorical device before? And Zionists used to say, well, that's a stupid analogy. That's not really exactly how this works. Things like that never happen. And lo and behold, Allah sends us Yaakov into the home of the Kurd family to like literally live out that analogy, almost like in, in a play-by-play. -play. Um, analogies are just meant to are just meant to drive a point. You you want to get lost in the forest um, and say, well, it's not exactly like rape. It's more like, eh, okay. Fine. It's like asking the mother of a murdered child to accept the murderer's apology. Whatever, right? You want to use something other than rape? Okay, but it it doesn't uh, it doesn't diminish from the point of the analogy. Right. I I agree with you there. The one thing I will say is that it depends which audience we want we want to reach. So certain analogies that's an analogy that's going to very much speak to a palestinian audience but if you're trying to reach the hearts and minds of of israelis then probably a different analogy should be used Th this is something that i'm constantly and again i i used the holocaust analogy before and it and it triggered it triggered jews in the chat and i understand why so th this is something that i'm constantly thinking thinking about and constantly trying to work on it's how can we convey a message right our audience is is very mixed we have people from from all over how can we convey a message that both sides can hear um, when naturally the more you, f you fit your message for one group, the less it's going to be palatable for another group. So it's very hard finding, finding that middle ground and, you know, and, and understanding what, what the right uh, use of words is, you know, and how to best change the hearts and minds of the people you want to reach. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, no, I know you got to, yeah, um, again, you, uh, like, j just to build on that, you very much, you, you probably haven't spoken to many Israelis, right? The majority of, of the people you've spoken to have been um, other Palestinians or Westerners about Palestine, right? Is that uh, fair to say? My, my exposure, my firsthand exposure to Zionists was all on university campus and they were all of the uh Likud variety <laughs> they by and large they were um 
it was interesting. It was good times. I was, a, I was also a different person back then, but maybe they've grown up. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, I know you do, I know you need a run. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'll stay on a little bit longer, take some audience questions, uh, chat a little bit, but you want to, Basami, you want to have some a final, final thought? Um, uh, I do want to see a world that minimizes suffering period. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm a generally pretty, uh, emotional person. Like I, I don't, uh, I don't like to see, I don't, I don't like to see people hurt. Um, what I'm saying here and everything that I've said, I've given a lot of thought. Uh, I, I've given it enough thought to, to know that I know what conclusion, I know what conclusion we need to come to uh, in order for Palestinian liberation to, to be a thing for real Palestinian liberation to take place. And I don't have any easy answers for anyone um, who is invested in the settler colonial project remaining exactly how it is. Sorry, guys. It's been great having you, Bassam. Um, very interesting conversation. Thank you, Adar. I, I uh, just in, in general, you know, I've, I appreciated. I appreciate um, whatever whatever we've developed here these past few months. Maybe friendship isn't is too too much of a normalizer term, but uh, I do consider you a friend. And I've, Listen, I've, I've, Adar, I will say with no, in no uncertain terms. Um, look, the reason why. All of my actual friends, okay, not my Instagram followers, but like my actual friends, all said, uh, "Really, you're doing this?" Because they all know I don't debate. I don't do debates. I haven't debated since university. It's not my thing. I can have conversations, but I know enough about you. I know enough about. And, and the first thing I ever said to you was that I believe that you're genuine in what you say, and I mean that. So I would not have had this conversation almost with anyone else. Um, because it's not really, like I told you, I'm much more interested in the project of truth than I am in the project of reconciliation. Um, I believe that you're sincere in conveying a message of Palestinian liberation. I believe that you're sincere in not wanting to see Palestinians oppressed in their indigenous homeland. And I can assure you that if you ever came to Vancouver, that you're welcome in my house for dinner. And that's something I only offer friends. How's that? I appreciate that. I very much appreciate that. And, um, I'd love to have you on again at some point. I'm sure I'm going to get outreach from a bunch of people who want to debate you. So, uh, not interested, <laughs> <laughs> not interested, not for sale. Cool. But thank you.